when the New York Times op-ed section has its holiday party, um, who is the most insufferable once they get a couple drinks in them? <laughs> I can't answer that. <laughs> Do you guys have, like, group listening parties for um, for Gimme Shelter, for our <laughs> podcast? You guys, like, you and, I don't know, Dowd and... Krugman, you get together and you're like, you know what? It's a Saturday night. We got nothing better to do. Let's let's put on Matt and Liam. We're, we're all fighting over uh, what to write about uh, the next great episode of Gimme Shelter. Hey, Gimme Shelter listeners, it's Matt. Hey, a quick and exciting announcement before we start the show. Gimme Shelter now has a sponsor. No, it is not MeUndies, unfortunately. So that lifelong dream both Liam and I have, um, still still a dream. Uh, but we are very excited to announce the James Irvine Foundation has decided to sponsor Gimme Shelter. And I actually have a, a tagline to read, which is very exciting. Gimme Shelter is sponsored by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Um, thank you to the Irvine Foundation. Um, with some of their sponsorship help, we will hopefully improve uh, some of the audio on the podcast, give me a little production help, teach Liam how to work his microphone. This will come in handy. So thank you very much, Irvine Foundation. Also, thank you to our loyal listeners, everyone who subscribed, rated, and reviewed the podcast, who um, gave it some love on social media. That helps. That helps when uh, sponsors are interested in sponsoring the podcast. Um, all right, that's it. Let's start the show. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters, and I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Thursday, November fourteenth, is California an unlivable hellscape? Yes. Wow. Strong take early on. (laughs) Um, So considering it is fire season and the epidemic of wildfires we've seen, as well as blackouts, um, combined with soaring housing costs, all are related in one way or another. There's been lots of discussion, particularly in the national media, of uh, whether this is a tipping point for California. Point of no return. Exactly. Whether this time it's different. Right. And we have the perfect guest to talk about this with. Yes, it's his uh, New York Times opinion columnist, Farhad Manju, who is a uh, part of the uh, panoply of articles in, in recent weeks uh, discussing whether uh, California was going to exist in, uh, a- as we know it in, in the future. Uh, big get for the pod. Yeah, and a fan uh, of the pod, which is a friend of the pod, fan of the pod, all those things. And we're very happy that he spent some time with us. Do you still read the New York Times op-ed page? Uh, I have an online subscription to the New York Times, and it's a it's a, it's okay, a very good yes. very good complement to my media diet. Okay, so that did not answer the question at all. So it sounds like you don't read the New York Times op-ed page. Uh, I'm I feel like I'm constantly inundated with takes from all all mm. all sides, all sources, all 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 parts of the world, and mm. so I I have to you have to kind of kind of kind of limit your take intake. We will also be talking with um, someone we've had on the podcast. A couple times before. I love follow-up stories. You know I love follow-up stories. Yeah, and this is good. This is uh, John Sill. He's a resident of a coffee park in uh, Santa Rosa. His Both his home and his business uh, burned two years ago in the Tubbs fire. Um, and he was telling us, uh, he also spoke with us in the immediate aftermath of that. And then one year ago, talking about what his life was like, mm-hmm. still in a trailer then uh, uh, on his property. And we get a really good update on what's going on in his life now. Yes, whether he's uh, still in the trailer, and his thoughts on whether we should be rebuilding in 
Santa Rosa period. Okay. Uh, thank you to everyone who came out to our host of live events over the past, what, month? Month, month and a half? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The tour was fun and exhausting. The last date on our Southern California live tour um, was at the Milken Institute in Santa Monica. What was that, last week, two weeks ago? I don't even remember. It's a, Everything's a blur. It is. Yeah. Um, where we talked about housing and homelessness issues with uh, Sacramento Mayor, Mayor Daryl Steinberg um, and Los Angeles County Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas. Yeah, they are the, the, the co-chairs yep. of uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's task force on homelessness. We will post the audio of that at some point in the next couple months. Now, for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it is... The Avocado of the Fortnite. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. This avocado takes us to San Jose and beyond uh, yeah. with a very, very effective marketing gimmick. What am I referring so, to, Liam? So, Matt, would you like $10,000? Uh, of course, yes. Yeah. I don't even need to know the strings attached. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's fine. How about you get $10,000, but you have to leave? Just, like, move. From where to where? Well, so, um, our this Fortnite's avocado poses this very question uh, where a <laughs> startup uh, has come upon the great idea, um, mm-hmm. idea we hear a lot, frankly, in the housing space of just people should leave the Bay Area, and that means that our housing problems will be solved. And so this company, uh, three former Google employees, uh, they're uh, called Main Street, will pay you $10,000 to leave the Bay Area and go work somewhere else. So I literally could have been $10,000 richer because I did move from Oakland to Sacramento three years ago if this, if this company existed back then. So, um, Sounds like you made uh, poor life choices. Yes, um, in so many, so many ways. So the, just to go into the rationale behind yeah. this, uh, yeah. we're, we're cribbing from a San Jose Mercury News story from Emily Duray. The rationale is we'll get you to move out of the Bay Area, and then the tech company that employs you can pay you less. But the cost of living will be so much significantly cheaper that it is worth it for you to do, plus you get ten grand. And it's, it's, so it sounds like wins, not just win-win, but like wins for everybody, right? Uh, I would say wins for everybody except me because I did not get ten grand three years right, ago, right. and also the first office that they are planning on opening yeah. is in Sacramento. Continuing yeah. the um, one-way exodus, exodus. exactly. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. But we should. I mean, there is this is a larger part of a larger conversation. I mean, like every you know a lot. Of, I mean, the, when it comes to the housing, and you get the, the supply and demand argument, and there are a lot of folks who say, "Oh, well, it's supply and demand. You got to build more houses." And there's other other people who are like, "Ah, but demand. We should get people out of here." Yes, you know. Um, and this this is uh, that'll that'll if you, if it's a that's the equation, then you know let's deal with both sides. And so this uh, very much speaks to an argument you hear at a lot of city council meetings uh, about dealing with housing problems in the Bay Area. Not just get people out of here, but relocate employment centers to places where it's more cheap to live. Yes. Yeah. And so, that sounds like a wonderful transition. There you to go. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So um, there was a big decision, big-ish decision, uh, recently down in Southern California on this very issue um, related to the worst acronym in housing politics in the state, which is saying something. Um, this was a decision made at the Southern California Association of Governments, or very unfortunately known as SCAG. 
uh, about where to plan for housing and growth in the region, um, which stretches from Ventura all the way to Imperial County, so huge, right, yep. for over the next decade. So just to give people some context to this SCAG meeting that you attended and reported on, there's another unfortunate acronym. Actually, I kind of like both of these. Um, this one is called RENA, the Regional Housing Needs Assessment. This is given, this is produced by the state, and it, it, it is a number that says, okay, SCAG, as well as all these other regional governments that also have unfortunate acronyms, none as, um, I don't know, CURT as SCAG. Yeah. Um, ABAG in the Bay Area, San Diego Sandag. Sandag, that's right. Sandag. Um, here's the big number of new housing that you have to plan for over an eight-year period. So that's what was being decided upon at SCAG. They got this really, really big number, 1.3 million, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which in context— triple yep. yeah, what they wanted to do. Yeah, triple what they wanted to do, what— uh, local governments in California wanted to do originally, and also basically triple what the state had said they had to plan for eight years ago in the previous housing cycle. There's been a tendency uh, in Southern California in general to kind of push growth or the projections for growth to areas where there's less demand, right? Um, so sort of into the desert, into Imperial County, into those places where you can zone for all the housing you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that actually housing is going to get built. Yep. Right. Um, and so the, the conversation that I was at uh, uh, last week um, at, at the SCAG meeting was about a potentially different decision, one that where there was kind of two dueling options, one that was sort of continuing the longstanding growth patterns of the region, pushing, pushing new housing uh, planning towards Riverside, San Bernardino, the, what's known as the Inland Empire, or an alternative plan that instead uh, would have pushed more growth or, or potential for growth into L.A. and Orange County and communities along the coast. And what did you think would happen heading into the vote? Well, I think I think the kind of the the, the, the a betting person would have suggested that um, or thought that the the region was going to continue to do what it has always done, uh, which is you know again push push growth or push growth planning to the Inland Empire. And in fact, uh, over time, that's what um, that's what the, the sort of the, the the direction of subcommittees and all these sorts of things was was pointing for. And, and as we mentioned before. Um, uh, there's a transition from the previous segment that we were the avocado segment is that uh, you know led by folks in Orange County, uh, one Orange County representative, uh, Peggy Huang, who's a city council member in Yerba Linda, um, said as much. She said, "Look, like the, the you know high density housing or is likely to be too expensive along the coast, so the region instead should work to encourage job growth in the inland area, these more flung, far flung areas where it's mm-hmm. more affordable." She said, and this is a direct quote, we should have been encouraging companies to go out there. Mm-hmm. Don't look at us, Orange County, the coast, go over there, right? So um, this was kind of the prevailing wisdom uh, among, in, in, you know, going back decades in Southern California. That's right. Um, and so, again, just to kind of reframe this broadly, the state says, you guys got a plan for 1.3 million new homes, Southern California. You decide where it goes. Some Southern California governments say, we want that in the Inland Empire. We want that where land is more affordable. We definitely don't want that here. And then there, there are others that are saying, well, unless you want people to drive an hour and a half to work and spew more carbon into the atmosphere, then we need to concentrate that $1.3 million in coastal job centers. Yep. Uh, and so take us a little bit through the drama. Where did they decide to put the bulk of that 1.3 million new home quota. 
so it was a pretty dramatic shift. I mean, the choice was uh, to push this uh, new growth uh, towards the coast. And just, just some numbers, numbers here, uh, the resulting decision uh, was to have L.A. and Orange County plan for one million uh, of the 1.3 million uh, homes, and that's more than triple the amount that both Riverside and San Bernardino counties will have to have to plan for. Um, and like, let's just continue with these numbers, just kind of say how stark it is, right? So under the what I called kind of the inland planned, mm-hmm. um, the you know desert city of Coachella would have had to zone for more than 15,000 new homes, while Huntington Beach and Orange County would have had to set aside land for 3,600. But the plan that passed, sort of what I called the coastal plan gives 7,800 houses to Coachella, while mm-hmm. Huntington Beach gets more than 13,000. So a huge, huge, huge distinction. How does Huntington Beach feel about that? Uh, not, nah. I mean, I didn't talk to anybody from Huntington Beach, but given their uh, uh, status as kind of the poster child of local control in the state, given the uh, dueling lawsuits between them and the state over housing responsibilities, can't imagine they're very happy. Is this going to work? <laughs> Why do you laugh? I mean, so, so the whole goal here, at least from the yeah. Newsom administration's perspective, this new housing, which local governments now have to plan for. So literally say this land, which was previously zoned only for this type of housing or for right. commercial or for whatever. Right. Now we're going to allow more housing, perhaps apartment buildings to be built on there. How will that actually result in more housing being built? Well, I mean, the theory is you zone for it and therefore it gets built, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the reality of that is significantly more complicated. I mean, we have years to go for these zoning plans to actually come into effect, right? Like literally years, right? And so we might might be like 2022, 2023 before we see the land actually being, you know, rezoned in this way, number one. Number two, this, this, this implies like you know, um, good faith on the part of local governments in, in doing this, particularly including those that have been resistant to these ideas in the past. You know, I did a big investigation of this process a couple of years ago, and I found there are a number of communities, wealthier communities, that sort of zoned, uh, uh, put land or set aside land for housing where no housing was actually going to get built, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you know, like uh, I've even heard stories of like, you know, zoning like medians on streets, right? I mean, just yeah. like, you know, like yeah. these sorts of things where, and it's very difficult for the state, which is oversight over this, to know the exact details of every single parcel in the state to be able to say for sure whether a particular piece of land is, you know, um, this is a real rezone or not, right? Um, uh, so, like, all these sorts of things make it very difficult to to, to sort of foresee or see a uh, an outcome here, at least in the immediate term, that's going to be very different than the outcome that we've had right now. That that being said, I don't want to I don't want to um, understate at least philosophically the shift that took place in this vote, which was you know really for the for the first time in, in recent memory um, or maybe ever, you have um, local government officials in a region saying uh, yes already built areas, um, already built, you know, kind of coastal areas should be accepting more growth than than areas inland. And on that note, there are new mechanisms um, that have been recently launched by the state um, to ensure that new housing does get built um, to help reach these new very, very large numbers that local governments will um, conceivably have to zone for. So one thing, SB 35, um, a bill or now a law um, from Senator Scott Weiner, a Democrat from San Francisco. Um, this was part of the 2017 housing package, so uh, predating Governor Newsom. 
Um, but uh, the, the main takeaway from that new law was, uh, okay, in those cities that aren't re- meeting their new housing quotas, developers in some instances will have a, a more streamlined process to get projects approved um, and basically prevent cities from obstructing new developments in some of the ways that they um, have become accustomed to, right? Uh, the, yep. the other portion of this, too, is both you and I kind of threw some cold water on the Newsom administration's um, crackdown on cities that don't have state-approved housing plans. The, the provision was basically a judge could essentially take over your planning department if you don't have a state-approved housing plan. But the reason we threw cold water on it was, um, well, that really only applies to a pretty small subset of cities, and many of those cities are small rural. and rural yeah, and not, poor, really, right. yeah, yeah. Not, not really the source of the problem. This conceivably could expand that list, right? Beverly. Yeah, I mean, I guess in theory, but again, we're talking a very long time down the road. Yes. It was years before any rezoning yes. would happen, years before the state would be challenging any of those rezonings, years af- after that before a judge would decide, yes, yes you are in fact in violation, yes. and then years and years and years away from that, um, a judge, you know, them being so uh, out of compliance that a judge would say, okay, enough, enough. So uh, again, I don't really think that that's, that that's much of a much of an issue here. I guess all I'm saying is that now um, Beverly Hills wasn't on that list, right? Correct. Um, and Beverly, that's because Beverly Hills only had to plan for three new additional housing units over an eight-year period. Right. And this is obviously a dramatic change. I mean, there are new numbers, more than 3,000. Exactly. Yeah. So if they don't effectively plan for it, they would get on the naughty list. And to your point, yes, it it would still take a lot of legal machinations to actually see real penalties. But that those penalties did not exist beforehand. Um, So one thing that was sort of made up a goodly number of the uh, public commentary from uh, advocates and uh, and for local government uh, officials on this issue was the idea of climate change, uh, arguing that look like not only for reducing um, you know emissions and folks driving to 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 work is it a good idea to put um, more housing near jobs, but also because uh, those in, those inland, inland areas are burning you know uh, for yeah. all these wildfires and and uh, and we've sort of seen that again in recent uh, weeks and, and and months with what's happening. Um, Really across the state, but but predominantly in Northern California, uh, with kind of the the Kincaid fire and uh, and others in um, during this time. That's a perfect transition. Let's talk about uh, wildfires and housing. So, what is it like? One in four currently live in areas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One in four Californians lives in a high risk fire area. Yeah. I I think there, there's a legitimate question of like if you don't rebuild in these areas. Yeah. Um. Can you meet some of the numbers that the state wants to meet? Well, I think, like, sure, like, mathematically you can. You know, you build four stories instead of three in, you know, in Huntington Beach, right? Um, but, like, I don't, I don't know, like, practically whether that's a realistic thing yeah. to do. I mean, I, I, you know, we've talked uh, about it, how the, and there is sort of has been one bill that tries to, that's now stalled, that, that tries to get at this issue of kind of making it hard, harder to build in wildfire zones. Um, but and I think, but in some ways, I think that's even almost the easy, the easy question. Um, you can, I mean, making it harder to build is in a lot of ways um, easier than making it easier to build um, in already developed areas, right? Um, there's a reason that a lot of the growth uh, has been happening or has happened in areas where there's that kind of vacant land. 
right? Mm-hmm. For a variety of reasons, it's easier easier to build there. Uh, that's where a lot of these now uh, now these sort of vacant land areas are where there's risk for wildfires, and so. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, we'll see. But, uh, you know, to your point, uh, it is tough to imagine a world where um, kind of all the growth goes into areas that are not at risk of, uh, of burning. And uh, beyond the, the obvious, like, practical constraints that you mentioned, uh, yeah. Newsom um, has, hasn't really entertained the notion of prohibiting rebuilding in very high fire risk areas, right? Uh, Newsom has... Yeah, I mean, he has a quote, um, I believe, from last year where he said, and I'll say directly, there's something, this is from the governor, something that is truly Californian about the wilderness and the wild and the pioneering spirit. spirit." Uh, He said, I'm not advocating for no building. Yep. Um, And there's a lot of state resources going into rebuilding right now, right? Right. Well, and there is, you know, these these issues do run headlong into each other. And maybe this is a good transition to the to the bill that was um, that was sort of at issue. This is a Senate Bill 182 from yeah. uh, Senator um, Hannabeth Jackson, um, uh, where uh, she was uh, hoping to um, sort of add some restrictions to local government's ability to approve housing and, and wildfire zones without um, sort of significant uh, kind of like uh, uh, you know planning for for that. Whether it's you know hardening the buildings or all the sorts of things you you would want to do, right, to, to, to make these buildings less susceptible to, to burning. Um, that bill was held in, in Senator Wiener's committee at the end of the session um, in September, uh, and his concern was this would affect, potentially affect, um, you know, cities from, um, uh, or he was worried about cities potentially shirking their mm-hmm. uh, housing responsibilities by relying on this argument. And so it's a, it can be a bit of a, a difficult needle to thread um, to kind of do things that would allow for housing production, but not in the places that um, where it could burn. I, I did a story on rebuilding affordable housing in Paradise. Um, so this is a this is a segue that is also self-promotional. This story was really about an obscure IRS rule that is gives um, affordable housing developers a very unrealistic timeline for rebuilding. But speaking yeah. with um, victims of the campfire who were in this affordable housing complex in Paradise, they... Uh, lots of them want to come back. The people yeah. who were victims of, of uh, not only the campfire, but um, other fires around California, many of them want, they don't want to live elsewhere. They want to move back to the place that they called home and often called home for a, a very long time. Yeah, and that's that's a good nice transition to our, uh, you know, our first guest where we talked to uh, uh, John Phil now um, about, uh, you know, living in Coffee Park, which burned two years ago in the Tubbs fire, uh, now was threatened with evacuations or the folks he had to evacuate and others did um, in that neighborhood uh, during the recent Kincaid fire. We're here with John Phil, a resident of Santa Rosa, who's been a guest multiple times on our podcast, talking about his experiences in the 2017 fires and going forward. Uh, John, thanks so much for being with us again. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be so, here. Um, so two years ago, both you were, you were uh, in Coffee, you lived in Coffee Park, the neighborhood in Santa Rosa that was completely uh, burned by yep. fires. Then uh, also your business was burned um, last year. You were when you, we spoke, we were living in a in a trailer. Um, and so, tell us uh, tell us where you are now. All right. So are, um, are you still in the trailer? No, no. We um, hey. so our house was that nice. Our house was done. I think we moved into the house. Uh, really, you know, late in May or first part of June. Okay. Um, my memory says June, but I don't know. 
Um, so, so we're finally out of the trailer. Uh, now we got to sell it. <laughs> and, and, but the shop is still hasn't even been started yet. Two years after, right. and it's still not started. So right now, I'm working out of some carport tents. You know, the kind with uh-huh. the canvas cover on them, whatever. And my office is literally a shed with one roof panel missing off of it. Actually, from the last last windstorm we had up here. What was the day like when you moved back into the house? It was happy. It was really nice. Yeah, it was um, super exciting. They had a blue ribbon on the door for us. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Who put the ribbon on the door? Um, Gallagher Construction. They're the ones that built our house. Oh. That's so they nice. put a, a ribbon on. Of course, we didn't get to keep the ribbon. They use it for other houses. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to keep the ribbon, but, you know, what are you going to do? So t- tell us, John, about your experience recently with the Kincaid fire. Um, did you? I know a lot of folks in Coffee Park had to evacuate. Did you have to evacuate as well? Yeah. Yep. We sure did. We had to... Um, I had that we had my 69 Camaro was in the garage at this point of our new house. Yeah. And I had to leave that thing behind because it's it's up on jacks. So I'm like, oh, the the car partially, you know, all the body parts and stuff for that car burned during the, during the tubs fire. Yeah. And all I could think about is like, man, now I'm getting this thing back together and it's, it might burn all the way because it's inside the garage. It's, it's scary because it's, it was windy again. It was real warm, just like the night of the fire, yeah. but not quite as windy. When you were evacuating again, I mean, did you reconsider the decision to rebuild in Santa Rosa? Yeah, no. Uh-uh. Why not? No. Um, <clears throat> I, because I think, I just feel like that fire was just a fluke, you know? Like, it, it, it's just, I call it the perfect storm, because it just happened the wind and the fire and everything all at the same night um, just happened to hit at the right time. Because, you know, there's been fires out here since, and they just put them out. Right. Because it's not so windy. There, there's some conversation um, about potentially adding limits on folks being able to build or rebuild in areas at risk of, uh, of, uh, of wildfire. Um, sounds like that's not something that you would be supportive of. Um, why not? I mean, I, my wife and I grew up in this area, and yeah. we've got our kids here, and um, I, it's just a nice place to live. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, there's the fire threat and all that, you know, but there's fire threat anywhere you go, pretty much. Or there's mm-hmm. something else, you know, it could be some other kind of, you know, thing that could happen other places. We don't, other places get hurricanes and tornadoes and, you know, that, but. I don't know. I mean, it's something you got to, we just, we just got to live with it and, and keep going. Hopefully we won't have to evacuate again like that. Cause that's pretty, that's, that's pretty, pretty traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to have to go through that again. Um, I've been having trouble sleeping again. I wasn't, I was doing pretty good. Um, two years after the fire, I was doing pretty good getting some sleep and all that. And now I'm like back, back to I don't know. I just this anxiety and you know, it's good to bed. It's like having a cup of coffee first. <laughs> I I hate to ask this, John, but don't you yeah. think it's gonna keep on happening and it's just gonna re-trigger all of the um, pain from two years ago? Like, it, yeah. if I had to bet, I'd bet that you would have to evacuate again. Yeah, I mean, it's pos- It's always possible. Yeah, 
Well, John, I hope when we speak to you again next year that everything is, uh, you know, back to the way it was and uh, yeah. we can talk, you know, be, be 100% positive instead of mostly there. So. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, hopefully yeah. we'll be able to, I'll be able to tell you about our new shop and yeah. everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. Have a good day. Take care. Okay, okay you too. Bye. Bye-bye. I mean, how many more times is he going to be willing to evacuate before <laughs> before it's untenable, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, there are, and this I think gets to some of the the, the questions that that um, Farhad is trying yep. to address or was trying to address in his column. This was, uh, you know, sometime uh, a recent column he wrote um, titled uh, "The End of California as We Know It," right? Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, we asked him, we talked to him about this, um, but you know, as you're well aware, and I'm sure listeners are too, every five to ten years there's another calamity in California where folks in the national media um, kind of ask whether it's over. California's over, right? Um, and uh, you know, he kind of his point is that well, this 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 time it feels different, and I'll I'll quote from it. Um, the apocalypse now feels more elemental, as if the place is not working in a fundamental way at the level of geography and climate, and everything we need to do to avoid the end it goes against everything we've ever done. Previously on the podcast, uh, we've done a little gimmick where both you and I have to say at the same time whether we. Uh, think a statement is true, mostly true, false, mostly false. Um, okay. I want to play that with that excerpt that you that you just read because I'm curious to get your take here. So again, the the premise here basically this time is different. California is on the precipice here. Uh, okay. All right, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Three, two, one. Mostly, mostly true. true. Ah. 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 I'm actually surprised that you were in the mostly true category. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, go ahead. Uh, you want me to go first? Okay, I'll yeah. go first. So, like, I and we get we do get into this interview too. Like, I, yes. I, I think I was, I was over the top, right? Like, people will live here. Like, this is a lovely place to live. Like, all those sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, I, I think it is too much to say like California's over, it's dead, etc. But like the the point of of um, we are now at a time when it is difficult to see the way out from the kind of the twin problems of, of, of housing and climate change, yes. I think is very real. I mean, I think it's literally the, the subject of everything that I've written in many ways um, over the last four years. And a lot of what's at the bottom of this housing crisis is, is, you know, you need to build a lot more homes uh, to, to ameliorate some of, uh, effects of the, or maybe a better way to say it, there's been a significant shortage of home building um, compared to California's history and compared to job growth and all those sorts of things, and especially in recent years. Um, and so you need to build a lot more homes to, 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 to fix that. Um, and then, though, where are you going to put them? I mean, if you're not going to – and so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, like given the face of, uh, of the, the risks and challenges the state faces from climate change. And so I, there's no real easy way out. I don't know how you get an answer to that that, that works. Um, and so that highlighting that um, problem – I think is central here, um, and and you could lead to an outcome where you basically have a society that's even more tilted towards only the wealthiest among that's us right. who could afford to live here, uh, and then a very small um, kind of sector of folks who are lucky enough to win uh, lottery f- lottery for a small amount of you know low income housing, yep. and then uh, not, not, not a lot of room for anybody else. Yeah. You know? um, I, so I think you're yeah. hitting on the the central kind of corollary to this, which is, who is it different for? Who is California over for? So, you know, it was interesting. 
uh, how Farhad's column played out in our newsroom. I had editors um, who were older, baby boomer, one baby boomer editor who, okay. who was a homeowner. And, you know, her reaction was basically, well, if you're having Farhad on the podcast, you know, ask him if he's still going to be here, you know, five, ten right. years from now, right? She's seen all of these stories before. Like you said, they do them every five or ten years, right? Right. Um, right. But she's a baby boomer homeowner, you right. know? So, it, yes, you've seen it before, but California is far more expensive now for anybody who's not really a, a homeowner. Um, yeah. If you are yeah. a renter and if you are a low income, yes, it is It is different this time. And, and you see it playing out in terms of who is deciding to stay in the state and who is deciding to leave, right? Yep. The, the, mm-hmm. You are disproportionately more likely to leave the state if you're making under 50 grand. And, and who is coming? It's, it's, yes. We it's people who make six who figures. Afford, um, yeah, who make six figures and can afford, um, you know, either to rent or to buy in some of the most expensive housing markets in, in, in the country. And with that, let's talk with New York Times columnist Farhad Manju. We are here with Farhad Manju of the opinion columnist with the New York Times. Uh, Farhad, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good to be here. I'm a fan of the show, so um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for yes. that, first of all. Big get. Big get. <laughs> big, big endorsement. Big endorsement, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, we talked a little about your, your column um, uh, in advance uh, of this, this interview, and our first question for you is, uh, are you planning to move? <laughs> no, not actively. Um, I mean, so I grew up in California. I uh, I like California, um, and I'm very uh, settled in California. We um, we own a house, which is actually a townhouse, but a house. Wow. Um, and our impressive. kids are, are <laughs> yeah, our kids are in um, a school that we like, and um, and they're like at the start of school. So like we have a first grader and a third grader. So we sort of are set at least for elementary school. For a while, and um, my wife has a job that is like very tied to this place, um, so it's unlikely that we would leave. Although, like we have thought about it, like I, we thought about it before um, our kids went to elementary huh. school, like when they were transitioned over. And um, you know, I've thought about it over the years, just like as uh, housing prices have gone up, and um, it's like something that has been sort of on the back of our minds and. I wouldn't rule it out. Like, it sort of depends on, like, I wouldn't rule out kind of moving away, especially to a different country, because uh, it's something that, that's something we've thought about. But, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I feel like for a lot of people I talk to, it's not an active conversation about whether to leave, but it's like something on the back of their mind. And that's it. That's for cost reasons? Like, that's the reasons you would do it? Like, cost, although I would say, like, a larger way to talk about it is just kind of like livability. Like, traffic is a big reason, too um for for us here but uh like cost and just like the of the like ease and sort of survivability um and livability of this place i think is something we think about often when did you buy your house uh 2014 so um it and we live in like uh on the peninsula and uh it's it's uh, you know, it's been a, been a good investment. We could sort of, uh, <laughs> like, barely, we've, it, we, we could, like, barely afford it, and we weren't really sure whether to buy, but we were, like, getting priced out of the um, of the rental market, um, or it seemed yeah. like we would. Mm-hmm. So uh, we bought 
um, a townhouse, which is I actually love, and I wish that you know I feel like there's a lot of criticism about um, about townhouses, uh, and you know especially single family home uh, owners don't like them. I think it's yeah. great. The only thing I wish we had is. Um, some kind of like backyard. I feel like a townhouse, and this is maybe another conversation, but my thinking is like townhouses with roof gardens would be the solution. Did, did anything change about your um, perspective on California once you became a homeowner? Um, that's a good question. I mean, not for me personally, because my politics about kind of housing and how much we should build have been fairly strident for a while. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's been that way. Like, I sort of thought we should, I've been thinking we should build more housing since I lived uh, in San Francisco, which was a decade ago now. Um, and so my feeling, my sort of politics didn't change, but I can understand how um, how they would. Like, I remember a, a more, a better example is like, I used to be very much for um, reforms to uh, the mortgage deduction mm, uh, yeah. and um, like for federal taxes. And, you know, and then they did change it in a way that, is better for kind of, I think, in a way that kind of housing reformers have long asked for um, in the in the Trump tax bill. But you know, personally, it was a hit uh, to get a lower deduction, and I didn't like that. So I can I can see how <laughs> sort of motivated financially uh, you may change your politics on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Not me personally, but um, I think that that I can see how that could happen. So tell us about the the central thesis of your story on the end of the California lifestyle, the end of California as we know it, uh, sort of the pressures on uh, housing affordability and climate change and wildfires are making it uh, close to impossible to to consider living here or see living here in the future. Yeah, I mean, so this year was the third year in a row that in kind of the Bay Area we've had uh, just – both huge fires and in huge fires in some places, and then a much wider uh, air quality problem as a result of those fires. Um, bad enough that the first year, which was what twenty seven seventeen, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. like we, I remember sort of very specifically. My wife has asthma, um, and so we very specifically like went out and had to get. Uh, air purifiers because the air got much worse than we thought it would, um, and sure. you know other supplies like uh, masks and stuff. And then last year, the big fire happened right before Thanksgiving, and we mm-hmm. kind of left town. You know, I think a week earlier than we thought we would. Um, you know, we have the means, and we were off from work for Thanksgiving week, and so it was relatively easy for us. Oh, and the kids' school closed. Um, which is another yeah. uh, thing that pushed us to to leave because if the, we thought you know if the air is bad enough for the school to close, like, and we didn't have any kind of work obligations to sticking around, then we left. Um, but it it really felt like you know as a I've grown up in sort of suburban California my whole life, and you know the only other time that I've sort of had the feeling of having to prepare or evacuate was for earthquakes, and mm-hmm. it sort of dawned on me that like the fires were a big enough emergency that you had to kind of think of them in the way that we think of earthquakes in the state, which is sort of a natural part of the the place and, you know, an emergency that you have to prepare for and you have to think about and sort of everyone talks about. Um, And so I think the fires really sort of um, added this kind of urgency to the way that I think about this place. But, you know, of course, everything else, like the the cost of housing, um, the unavailability of housing, and... um, you know, the kind of difficulty of reform, the kind of SB50, the, the, it seems like 
the politics around it are kind of dead end because of the incentives and um, and compared to a lot of other places, just the culture. It seems like you know when you talk to people about it, or when I look at like my vice is looking at next door too much. Many of my neighbors just seem very against other people moving here, even though yeah. many of yeah. them move here very recently themselves. But it's just, it's just a sense that like I got mine, and um, I I just sort of started to resent that. And then you know it's harder to drive. Like the traffic is much worse than when we got here. Um, and there doesn't seem to be obvious improvements for those other than like making it better for cars, like building more lanes. People don't, um, especially in where I live, like on the peninsula, I think Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco are different, but people don't really talk about or think about biking or alternatives to cars. It just feels like the conversations that we should be having about climate change in this place and sort of livability and population growth, um, are not happening, or if they are, they're happening in a way where kind of the forces of reform are loud, but not um, particularly effective at this point. So what, what uh-huh. do you attribute that to? Why, why can't California collectively um, solve these problems or at least attempt to solve these problems? And are, are we unique in that type of failure? Oh, I don't think we're unique at all. I mean, you know, the problems of kind of sprawl and the... Um, the kind of resistance to change, I think, are in many parts of the United States. Yeah. Although I feel like we kind of, in California, led the country in building this kind of lifestyle. Um, I mean, particularly Southern California, but Northern California also. And, and you know, a lot of other places that have these, uh, this, what I think of as a very inefficient kind of um, urban planning and, and, and like livability, um, you know, they, they, they copied us. They went after we did. Um, and so I, I do feel a sense, like I, I have primarily written about technology and the technology industry um, in California. And there is a sense in that industry in, in a way that I think is, is like um, – kind of maligned, but there's a sense that, like, California and the people out here are kind of building the future. And this is an area, like, livability and kind of the the design of the place and its ability to kind of deal with um, change and the climate in other ways is a way we're just way behind. We're not leading the way that I think people in tech think that we're leading on other things. And it just struck me as um, kind of a very... bad kind of report on this place that not only do we have all these problems, but we're not the ones kind of out of, out ahead in making these changes. I think that you're, you're well aware and you, I think you nodded to this in the column of like the history of folks kind of declaring California being over, right? Like that goes back like a century almost, right? There's a, that is Googling around right before this. And there was a, you know, pretty famous dystopian newsweek cover from the late eighties, California, the American dream, American nightmare, uh, you know, within a few hours, hours of your article posting, the Atlantic did one. California is becoming unlivable, yeah. right? Um, so, so why did you feel, given that history, sort of comfortable doing making that kind of declaration, right? And sort of what's different about now that you think the, these sort of times in the past where California was declared uh, over uh, was not, you know, correct? Um, I, I mean, there are a couple things. One, I do think that the problems we face now are. Um, in many ways, kind of more urgent and more um, and sort of just sort of deeper kind of uh, they're part of, as I said on the column, they're, they're part of the infrastructure. They're part of kind of the basic way we design this place. And um, they're also kind of about our political institutions, which just seem inadequate to 
to the problems at hand. I mean, I think, I think you, you you guys have kind of covered the the state government and their um, like the the inability to boost more build more housing, even though we have a governor who like campaigned on this and he seems to sort of be backsliding on some of his promises. Um, but also like federally, like it's just it's just as a as someone who both covers and thinks about national politics and and through the lens of kind of California, um, I just don't think we have a lot of say uh, federally, just, you know, considering our size, we don't have a lot of federal power, and not just because of Republicans. I mean, the Democratic Party also, I think, treats us um, in the state as more of like a, an ATM, like a constituency <laughs> to think about. Um, and so just kind of politically and culturally, it just seems like we're not up to the task. And then the problems of, you know, the problems of climate change um, are coming on in a, in a much faster way than we you know, in California or climate scientists or anyone else kind of thought. Um, and, we, you know, the whole country, the whole world is struggling to deal with them. And I, and I feel like we in California have good intentions on this stuff, but we're often just stuck culturally or politically to, to kind of get anything done. So it does seem to me in many ways more urgent. Although, I mean, as I pointed out in the column, like, I think people have, have, have called attention to these kinds of problems in California before and proclaimed at the end. The reason I thought that I should do it again or do that kind of thing is because um, I also just, as a person who has a, um, you know, a national platform on this, I just wanted to make it a much more urgent issue. Like spelling out, like, I just think it feels like having to evacuate because of um, terrible air just feels apocalyptic in a way that, you know, it shouldn't in this country. And so I wanted to kind of draw attention to the kind of ground urgency of the problem. I, I just want to chime in on this. It does feel, at least to me, different this time. I attribute that primarily to the cost of living because people are doing the mental calculus, considering all the other difficulties of living in this state, um, the cost is prohibitively high. I don't know if you have a take on this, Liam. Well, it just it, I think what I think what your column highlighted it and why I why I liked it despite some of the kind of the I think the natural blowback from, you yeah. know, uh well, California, you know, is always on, you know, is always different, has always survived and these these calls come every 5 years or 10 years or whatever. What what I appreciated it I think is that it it highlighted issues that I think Matt and I and the entire state is grappling with all the time, which is it doesn't really seem like a pretty this just seems in some ways irresolvable right i mean you you layer the climate problems over the housing problems and you know how long uh, it is to take it would take to fix both of those things right um and you and and you don't see the machinery of government really moving uh, quick enough in that yeah. direction, and so you're just like, well, what what's the answer here, right? And there's so many incentives. You know, we we we, we may get into some like Prop 13 stuff, you know, later on, but like so many incentives are to not do this, right? To not do the things that would that would uh, you know aim to fix it. It just seems like, well, okay, here this is where we are, you know, and this is the future if we don't kind of make a, a very radical radical change. So. Um, yeah, um, well, I mean, one of the one of the major criticisms of the piece was that it was too kind of pessimistic and like nihilistic, and you know, uh, several. I, I thought the best responses to it were about how there are um, movements and and specific lawmakers and uh, just kind of a constituency for change across you know housing and climate and a bunch of other problems, um, and that my column um, you know gave them short shrift or kind of ignored them. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want to kind of rain on that um, movement of reform. And so I do, I do think those are important. Um, but to me, 
it just seems like they're being kind of swamped by the other side in various ways and just kind of fed the process. Like the process um, in this place is, is just seems very difficult to get those kinds of reforms. And, um, and it, it, it does seem like they're coming much slower than, than we need. So switching gears a little bit, you are our first member of the national mainstream media. You're you're definitely our first New York Times um, op-ed contributor. What do you think the national media kind of misses about California? Um, Yeah, I mean, I... I identify with sort of California very strongly. I work at the New York Times. People think that I uh, live in New York, and um, I've never lived in New York City. Uh, I, I went to college in New York State. I went to Cornell, and that was my only time on the East Coast. I have a lot of um, criticisms about how the national media at the Times and you know everyone else um, kind of portrays California. I mean, my biggest criticism is that we just don't get enough coverage, uh, kind of uh, considering the population, the um, importance of, like, our, our industries, like Hollywood and, and technology, um, just all the money that's here. Uh, you know, part of I, – I became an op-ed columnist at the time relatively recently. I was um, just a technology columnist before, and part of my pitch for becoming an op-ed columnist was to, that – people don't write about California enough and that I wanted to. Um, so this was something I kind of wanted to rectify in, like, my job. Um, but it, it's uh, – I think that, you know, for example, like, last year, I remember, and the year before, um, we – the state was kind of – during the fires, like, people were evacuating. The, the state was, like – they were huge natural, natural disasters in the, in the biggest state in the country. And if you turned on cable news – um, like the night, any of the nights of the fire um, out here, you have mostly seen coverage of like the Mueller investigation and like the Department of Justice rather than, you know, huge natural disasters in the biggest state. Um, I think that, you know, the national media has been obsessed in, in various ways, in like various good defensible ways with the Trump administration and lots of other things in the world. And, um, you know, uh, to uh, natural disasters that happen in the, on the East Coast, uh, compared to like just forgetting in some ways California. So that's my major beef with, with um, mainstream national media. Um, and so I'm trying to rectify that in what way I can from the op-ed page of the Times. Um, so I do think, though, I mean, there is a lot of coverage nationally of the California housing issues. And, and a lot of it is, you know, and frankly, in a relatively apocalyptic terms. Uh, and that's not necessarily not befitting the state of the situation uh, here. Um, but why do you think... Mm-hmm that this particular issue uh, uh, gets uh, attention perhaps more so than any other or a lot of other things that are happening in the state from the national press. Um, Does it? Yes. I I mean, it's interesting to to hear you say that. I I feel like housing in California gets some national um, press, but I don't see it. I mean, the reason that I listen to your podcast is because I don't find a lot of other places in the national yeah. media kind of covering it. You are obviously well-versed in um, tech issues. Google and Apple um, and Facebook have uh, pledged billions um, to confront housing affordability issues in the Bay Area. I'm curious uh, what you think of that. Yeah, um, so I'm glad they're doing it, uh, although I'm skeptical of the impact um, we had, I think, we had a great story by Connor the other day about how um, 
you know, I, I think what, what you guys try to highlight on the show, which is like, it's not just a money issue. It's like the zoning and other things that um, I don't think the tech companies have a lot of, um, at least their money, I don't think is going to change things. And I don't know what extent, to what extent they're involved in like the lobbying around these issues and kind of other ways that they can, um, you know, use their power to affect change. Um, I do think that they've been just kind of in the way they think about their own use of this of like this space. They've just been backward on this issue for a long time. Like I live not very far from Google and Apple and Facebook, and they just have you know huge offices in out of the way places, and they all just come on big buses and leave on big buses, and they don't have uh, buses for the public. They don't have an investment in improving Caltrain. Um, you know the whole idea of like Apple's huge project in Cupertino that just brought a lot more people and banking on them coming with cars rather than other kinds of transportation. I just think that they haven't been very forward looking, especially, you know, considering their business, the idea that they're technology companies and should be planning for the long future. Like they're better that they they're building um campuses that sort of essentially depend on cars and that's crazy to me. Um that they're not thinking about, you know, better transportation or just kind of more forward looking ways of building generally. Do, do you think it's weird? I mean, you, you could maybe speak this too, the idea that you know, tech is blamed a lot for some of the housing problems, particularly in the Bay Area. But it, is it kind of weird that the, kind of the response has been these kind of seemingly voluntary, you know, land donations or some cash or some loans? And there's not a lot of talk about, like, at least at the state level, about um, taxing them further. I mean, it just seems weird to me that, like, we're talking about this in terms of, like, yeah. hey, thank, thanks for the billion dollars, uh, you know, um, Apple, um, when you could, you know, tax them, and then the state would get to, to, to do what it wants with that money, right? Um, instead of having to rely on them. Yeah, and why I mean, not? Like, is that a strain? I mean, it's just been strange to me. I'm curious if that strikes you the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's mostly because they were very powerful in the state, and like the idea of taxing them specifically is just kind of a no-go. Um, yeah. I, and I also think that the, their effort to kind of give money as a way to preclude um, some, you know, taxes or, or yeah. other kind of requ- actual legal requirements of them on this issue. Um, I think it's a way to, you know, suggest that they are doing something and so they're not forced to do more. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it just – it seems to me that, you know, taxing them or requiring them to think about housing in some different way, um, requiring them to relocate or provide some kind of systems for for um, like public transportation, all those things could be on the table. So uh, take us 10 years into the future. What do you think California looks like then um, in terms of livability? Yeah, good good question. I, I, I mean, my as my colleague suggested, I, I fear that we're just going to kind of stumble into this uh, future and all the problems we have now are just going to kind of gradually get worse. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we may be able to solve some of those, like, uh, life and death issues, like, like basically we may be able to abate um, the fires, but probably the other stuff, I don't know. I have a deep pessimism about um, transportation and housing, um, and maybe in the next 10 years we'll be able to pass some kind of reforms that will set us on a better path for the, the following 10 years. Um you know, on the other hand, like, I may be misreading this political moment completely, and uh, maybe the uh, kind of forces of, um, you know, favoring density and um, tr- 
reform in transportation and building new infrastructure, maybe those are, uh, you know, brighter than I think. And like maybe the next 10 years will be a real decade of change. I hope so. Um, because, you know, I would like to continue to live in California for like decades to come. So I hope it changes. Um, but I don't know. I, it just, I'm, it seems if I were to bet, like I would bet against uh, major changes for the positive. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Is are you, do you do you think you're going to be here ten years from now? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I would say there's a greater than fifty percent chance of that. Uh, so, yeah. Well, what about after your kids turn eighteen? After your kids leave the house? Yeah, uh, I've thought about that often. I I think it's unlikely that I'll remain like, or at least that I'll consider it like my primary residence, um, because yeah. there's just. Like after after I don't have to raise kids here, like the whole world opens up just for that reason. But also, it would make it it just doesn't wouldn't make financial sense like to not sell the, at that point. Like what would be a much um, like I can see why people sell up their stakes and retire to other lower cost of living states. Like it just seems like a very good financial decision to do that when you retire uh, because like continuing to stay here after that seems very difficult. Last question when. The New York Times op-ed section has its holiday party. Um, who is the most insufferable once they get a couple drinks in them? <laughs> I can't answer that. <laughs> Do you guys have, like, group listening parties for um, for Gimme Shelter, for our <laughs> podcast? You guys, like, you and, I don't know, Dowd and... Krugman, you get together and you're like, you know what? It's a Saturday night. We got nothing better to do. Let's let's put on Matt and Liam. We're all fighting over uh, what to write about uh, the next great episode of Gimme Shelter. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's it for me, Liam. You got anything else? No, that's it. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a listener, too. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to be here. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And I'm Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at Dillon Liam. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.